Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with Devry Velasquez, who is a content creator and chronic illness survivor. She lives with Takayasu's disease, which is a rare disease um, that she's going to get into and tell us all about. So Devry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, total pleasure. So why don't we start from the, the very beginning? When and how did you first realize that you were sick? So everything happened in 2011. It was over the course of literally a few weeks or maybe a month. Um, So what, and I don't even, my brain fog is so bad. So I don't know what exactly started first. All I know is that literally everything was happening day after day. It was so close, all of my symptoms. Mm. And it's just like, it's like as if I woke up and an alien or something was kind of inhabiting my body because I felt the changes so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my vision for a few minutes. One time when I was at the store, I was re- literally, I was reaching for something on the shelf and then my vision, um, everything turned black mid reach. So mm-hmm. I couldn't find the thing I was trying to reach for on the shelf. Wow. And um, the second thing that, ha- or the n- another thing that happened in that same time frame was that uh, I had like really rapid weight loss. I lost maybe 20 pounds and I didn't even realize because I wasn't around family or anything. I was in my last year or my last semester of undergrad and uh, I was away from people who had known me. So I didn't have anyone around me to tell me that I looked sick or I looked different. Uh, My skin was becoming pale. My eyes were becoming kind of jaundiced. My hair was falling out. And I just thought, I chalked everything up to stress because I was working also. And um, and speaking of work, another thing that happened at work was uh, I remember I was sitting at the desk and my wrist kind of fell limp while I was typing. Mm -hmm. And I just assumed, oh, I have carpal tunnel because I type so much and I'm on the computer a lot. And so I did all these things. I couldn't, I didn't connect them because they just seemed like one off kind of things that were happening Mm. and at the same time I was 20 years old so I wasn't as connected to my body the way that I am now 
And so I was kind of witnessing these things as an outsider happening to my body, but I just wasn't connecting anything. Um, another thing was my heart rate was extremely high. I had um, really bad heart palpitations. The normal heart rate uh, for someone my size, my age at the time was like maybe 80 to 90 beats. Uh, and I was, my normal heart rate was maybe like 160 to 180. Whoa. And that was a resting heart rate too. Resting heart rate. I would be laying down and it felt like I was running a marathon. Wow. And, um, so what happened was the, my, the big revelation that caused me to really look into what was going on was I had a family reunion and that was when I met up with my family, my parents, um, my mom's a nurse and she saw me and she's normally super chill. She doesn't worry. She's not one of those people who, over worries about anything. Uh, she always has been the person who's calmed me down when I've worried, you know, about something. When she saw me, she looked at me as if she saw a ghost. And wow. she was, you know, she doesn't cry. She doesn't, she, she's just not one of those people. So she looked like she was devastated. And I remember noticing her expression and becoming scared and worried. And she took my pulse in the bathroom during the reunion. Uh, there was a big party going on, but we were in the bathroom. She took my pulse and she was like, we need to get you into a hospital. Wow. And we were so excited to see our family. We hadn't seen, you know, my great grandma was there. We were celebrating her 95th birthday or something. And just, we were really excited about being around family, but we, she, she was like this, none of this matters. Let's get you to a hospital. And yeah. The, her and my dad took me to a hospital. It was actually also their like 20th anniversary or something. Oh man, it's a lot at once. There was a lot happening. And uh, I through a series of tests. Luckily, because of my parents' like friendships with people in the medical industry um, or the healthcare industry, I got a diagnosis maybe a week later. Oh, that's so lucky. That's unusual. Because yeah. usually with all those symptoms we hear, like people wait years for a diagnosis. Yeah. It was, so how, what, how did that happen? Was it that they were actually looking for the zebra? Like they were looking for yeah. the unusual cause? Yeah, I think, you know, and that's something I still, I'm so grateful for to this day. And I still feel that impact. I know that, which it, it helps me want to survive and want to continue thriving because in that moment, I understood, even if I didn't fully understand it, I saw how hard people were rallying for me, people who I don't even know or didn't know personally, you know, who were friends of my parents, who were, they just really wanted, everyone wanted to find an answer. So it became important for me to want to kick this thing's ass. Like, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on, but I was ready. I was in the driver's seat. I was nervous. I was so scared. I was so scared. Yeah. Um, you know, I felt like I, physically, I felt like I was going to die. And I felt like that that whole first year of my diagnosis, every single day I woke up nervous to open my eyes because I thought I was going to die in my sleep. Like I, wow. it was, it was really bad. And I was on bed rest for that whole year, which if anyone knows me before then or after then, like that, I, for me, not to you. Be, yeah, it's not me at all. Like for mm. me to be in one place physically and, you know, have to be forced to bed. Like I had to stay in bed all day. I had someone who 
had to, I had to be taken care of financially. I had people, you know, someone, uh, a partner who helped take care of me, bathe me and mm-hmm. do, and, you know, cook dinner and like do all the things that I was so used to doing on my own. Um, that really humbled me. And it, that year was just such a big transition for me to, I, I was humbled in the way where I realized it's first of all it's okay to ask for help and it's also necessary and it it was a means of my to my survival and um the mental weight that it had was so much bigger than the physical stuff as crazy as the physical stuff was I mean it was it was so painful living and just physically it was so painful but the mental battles that I faced that first year on all those new medications and everything I was so many different things. I was angry. I was depressed. I was all these things. Um, but anyways, I digress. But that's that. It was just, um, yeah, it was just such a life-changing year for me. Yeah. Just- so tell us a bit about your diagnosis and and sort of how it, how it works. It's Takayasu's disease. Is this something genetic? Like, do we know why you came down with this? Yeah, we don't really know why. Um, and that's something that I've also had to like kind of release the curiosity of how or why. Um, it's my mom has an autoimmune disease. She has, and then my, her mother has an autoimmune disease. So I do know that, and I have two sisters, two biological sisters. So I do know that it runs in the family as far as autoimmune diseases go. Um, and then, but the interesting thing about takiasis is that it affects women mostly in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when they get diagnosed or become really sick. And women of Japanese descent, which is interesting, it's mm-hmm. a Japanese, it has a Japanese name because a Japanese doctor discovered it uh, because it was so, it was predominantly, I guess, found in women who lived in, in Japan. And so, that's interesting because I'm not of Japanese descent. I took the test and everything. I was going to ask if you had your ancestry like, done. <laughs> yeah, I was, I mean, it's because I feel like I could probably pass as someone who has Asian descent, but I don't, I have none. Mm. And so that was another interesting thing is that I don't, we don't know like why me, why Takiyasu's, how did this happen? We don't know if it was something that was dormant in my body and I was just going through a stressful time of my life and then it kind of erupted after that, which with autoimmune diseases, that's popular, that happens. Um, you know, we don't know, but I, and then I'm the only sister, I'm the only person, you know, in this generation who has, who has the illness. So, you know, it's interesting and, um, but yeah. But so Takiyasu is an autoimmune. Yes. And is it something that you can pass on if you have a family? I, I, I don't. I don't think we. There's enough information on that either. Um, well, because it's first, such a rare disease. I mean, this is the thing yeah, with rare diseases so rare. too: is that they're so often underfunded in terms of research because fewer yes. people have them. Exactly. Yeah. Right now, there is the biggest registry for Takiyasus is in Japan, and it's about 1,300 patients. Who, Which is still right? small. That's a small That's a amount. Small number, super small. And right now in America, it's um, I'm one of every two to three million people. 
So wow. I live in Brooklyn, so I like to give that as an uh, example because there's about 20, uh, 2.5 million people who live on in Brooklyn. And so like statistically speaking, I am one person in all of Brooklyn, New York, who probably has this. Yeah. And that is how rare it is. I mean, there's a lot of people here in New York City. So um, if we went over to New York City, to Manhattan, there's 6.5 million people there. That means that I'm one of three people probably who have it. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's crazy. It must so, make you feel kind of special, though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it also can make me feel pretty alienated and misunderstood yeah. as well because no one can really understand or relate, you know, not many people can. So Totally. So what steps did you take to control your health? You had that year in bed Mm -hmm. um, and you were trying out different medications and it sounds like the main thing was your heart, right? That like all of this stuff was affecting your heart. So how did you get to where you are now where you're functioning really well and you're healthy? Yeah. um, The main thing, like I said, it was more of a mental battle than anything. Mm. I think I had to really get a hold of the idea of death. Well, the reality of death, because it's not an idea, it's the truth. And I had to come to terms with that. And I had to find something inside of myself that told me it's okay. Like, we're all, none of us get out of this thing alive. So Mm. if you want to do something, Debra, do it. And in order to do the thing that I wanted or to pursue my dreams that I've always had, just they've been in me. I've always innately like had this, this uh, ambition or this drive and it's never gone away since I was a little girl. In order for me to continue the, you know, pursuing those goals and dreams, I told myself I needed to be more fearless. And in order to do that, I need to be disciplined around my diet, around my rest periods. I need to set hard boundaries for myself with friends and family. I need to be okay with saying no to things, which that part I'm, I still struggle with because so do I. <laughs> you know, I'm such an overachiever. I'm such a yes person when it comes to and it's always us. I can't tell you how many yeah. times I've been sitting in an interview and been like, why is it us type A people, like the ones who get yeah. shit done, that yep. this always happens to? Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. And I think it's, we can just, we have a capacity to kind of hold and carry more. So, you know? Yeah. And you write about this stuff a lot in the poetry that you post Mm -hmm. on Instagram and, you know, in your, all of your various writings, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea of mortality because does Takayasu's also affect your life expectancy? Yeah. So when I was, when I got diagnosed when I was 20 years old, which is it was a few months before my 21st birthday and they basically told me or I actually overheard a conversation between my parents and the doctors in the hallway while I was heavily sedated Mm. and they were discussing the mortality rate and I'll never forget that conversation because it felt like I wasn't supposed I don't think they knew that I heard them talking and um, they were talking about funeral arrangements and it really hit me yeah, it was a it was a tough conversation to hear, but at the same time, I needed to hear it for some reason. I mean, I was I, I heard it so clearly, and um, so at twenty, the life expectancy was ten years. There's a forty percent chance that I would live ten more years, which is less than fifty percent. That's less than half of a chance that I'll get to see thirty. My birthday is 
and my 30th birthday is actually in a few weeks. Um, Amazing. So I'm like, wow, I'm here. I made it. I didn't, honestly, I didn't think that I would live to see 30. And I'm wow. living the best year or the best season of my life yet. And I'm, I'm in awe and I take no credit. I really don't take any, you know, credit for it. I just, I feel like I'm just kind of sitting back in, in awe, just like Mm -hmm. a lot of people who know me, because it's just so amazing, like how much things have changed. And, um, I still deal with my pain, but you know, for, as you know, like this is our normal, this is kind of what we go through Mm -hmm. when we see the pain scale on at doctor's visits on the paper, it's like, I kind of feel like I'm always at an eight or a nine. I don't, you know, like, but for me now, my eight or nine on my pain tolerance levels for me, maybe a two or three because I've endured so much. Yeah. So I, I don't think, but it's, yeah, I think it's just my capacity to, to carry so much. I'm, I'm able to do it. And I know, uh, I've learned to be more graceful about how I handle it. I wasn't always great about that, but. Well, how could you be great from the get-go? I mean, that's yeah, kind of a big thing to be carrying around, especially at such a young age. Yeah. Wow. And in terms of the, in terms of the chronic pain, where are you feeling pain on a daily basis? Is it like chest pains? Um, Yeah, I feel chest pains a lot, you know, where it feels like I'm having a a heart attack. Mm. And I've even still, you know, I never want to get caught slipping where I undermine my own pain and think, oh, it's not a big deal. But I've gotten better about kind of monitoring things where I don't feel like I need to always go tell someone and I can just kind of write it out and let it pass. I don't know if I would recommend that, like, as good advice. Because I do feel like we need to speak up if something's going on with us that mm-hmm. needs attention. But um, I do feel like I'm more in tune with myself where I can sit and kind of let something pass. And that's the thing about my pain is that even if it's excruciating, which there are times when it is absolutely excruciating where I feel like I'm dying, I still know that it lasts only for maybe a minute. And that's, that's something that helps me is that I know I'm in the worst pain right now in this second while I'm standing in line or while I'm doing whatever it is that I'm doing, but I know that it's not going to last. And that helps me, you know, and then it, it always passes, it always passes. And so that it's always, you know, it helps me because in the moment it can feel so just horrible, but it that's the great thing about my pain is that it doesn't a lot of times even if I have it throughout the day each little event is only maybe a minute or two minutes long so right so you're still able to function another place that I have my pain is like my joints that's my main right I walk a lot in New York so uh, I have a lot of a lot of wrist pain a lot of shoulder and knee pain Mm -hmm. I have a cane that I use so Yeah. yeah Wow. It's just amazing. So you overheard this conversation with your parents and the doctors. um, And obviously your mom sounds like she was there from the get-go taking you to the hospital and everything. So although it sounds like you're advocating for yourself really gracefully at this stage, did you, or do you still rely on someone like your mother or someone else in your life as a personal advocate? And, and how's that 
affected your relationships? Absolutely. I, I rely, I do rely heavily on my friends, on my community. I I rely heavily on them and from a distance. I'm very, I'm very self-sufficient and independent in my personal life, but, um, and I pride myself on that. I, I like to get things done on my own, but I do rely on my friends for moral support, uh, to pick me up from doctor's office, you know, when I'm uh, getting my treatment done and I can't take public transportation mm-hmm. or even financially, if I can't, I'm a freelancer, so I don't have um, regular health care. And so I have friends who will pay for an office visit or pay for my medication and they're great in that way. Um, and then of course my mom, she is like, She's been keeping like a huge book of documents since the day I got diagnosed. So I can always call her and refer, like she'll pull out the exact test from that year or she'll explain things to me in depth because she's so analytical in that way. She's great about that. She's very science based. Like she's so great about that where she can break things down, like scientific things or medical things down for me in a way where I'm able to like understand because it's hard. I don't, I don't always understand what's even going on. Mm. You know, I wish I could just open my chest and kind of look in. Yeah. Because it's just, it can be really overwhelming. All of the numbers and all the labs and the tests. Yeah. It can be a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So have you found that that's also made your relationship, like you're relying on your friends and on your mom, and obviously you have these close relationships. Have you become even closer because of it? And and do you think that your mortality is also playing a role in that? Yeah, I, I know for, for sure that, I mean, I look at even I, I'm dating, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm single, but I'm dating. And even when I go on dates or when I hang out with people, potential love interests, I always think about them. The first thing I think about is how would they, you know, would they be able to hold me down if I'm going through a, a major episode? Right. That's important to me. That's something I have to ask. And so I, be, for that reason, I'm actually really grateful because I, I don't have a lot of I understand that I don't have a lot of time to play around or to like do things super casually. So I'm really intentional about any new friends, any new lovers, anyone who I'm inviting into my space because I do protect my own body, mind and soul so much and so hard. Yeah. So that's important for me. And it's, it's, um, and yeah, mortality, like the, just the concept that, the, the reality that death is going to happen, I, I don't want to waste any time. Time means a lot to me. And um, every single day, I try to make it all count. So yeah, I'm which intentional. it's interesting you say that because I, I feel like I only know you from Instagram, right? And, and from talking today, but I really see a joy for life and for being with your friends and family that's all throughout your what you're expressing outwardly and it's really great i think especially for other spoonies to be tuning in and seeing this kind of attitude this kind of outlook because 
you don't seem to miss an opportunity, you know, like you're, you're always getting out there. You're when a trip comes up, you're taking the trip. When, (laughs) when these new relationships come up, you're diving in head first, you're engaged with various communities. Um, and I think we can all take a page from that book because it's something that like really feeds you too, doesn't it? Like it's something that's quite nourishing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So what does a typical day look like for you as you're navigating your symptoms and managing pain and, and also getting excited about being in the world and living life? Well, that's, that's basically what it all comes down to. Um, I, so yeah, I, I have the pleasure of being able to work remotely Mm. because I'm a creator. So I, I write, edit, I model, I go and do public speaking events um, and because of that, the main function is, it's, it's ironically these two things. I'm able to connect with a lot of people. I'm also able to have a lot of solitude in a lot of moments to myself. Mm. So I love traveling and doing those things because of, because I have a good balance of being able to, in, in the interim of me getting to a place or a destination, I have so much time to myself to write poetry, to listen to a, you know podcast or music or to reflect and meditate. And then when I get to the destination, I can turn on and I can become my extroverted self and I can connect, I can tell stories and share stories and it's great and I can engage with people. And then going, getting back home, I'm able to decompress through my solitude again. And so it's like a perfect uh, balance. It sounds like, it's, yeah, it's a great balance. I love it. I don't, I, you know, and it, like you said, it nourishes me. It really does. And it's not one thing over the other. They both equally nourish me. I love talking to people and I love hearing people's journeys and stories because it, it just humans inspire me so much. Hmm. And I love even just people watching. I like, I'm a big coffee shop worker. So I'm always somewhere in a corner, listening to people, watching people, looking at their outfits, <laughs> you know, asking myself questions about like, existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm that person. I'm always, I'm a big philosopher. I'm always self analyzing just my own thoughts. Um, I'm always just going inward. And then at the same time, I'm able to work and I'm able to put, you know, put work out and create. But, at, you know, so I, I'm always getting a good balance of those things. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's what an everyday, a, a day in the life of Devery looks like. It, it's every single day is so different. I mean, I just, before this, I just got done um, I was at a climate change protest outside. Yes, this is this is climate strike day. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I I was out there doing that just now in the middle in a in a crowd of hundreds of like thousands yeah. of people, so many people, and I had my sign up, and then I you know got I have put my sign down, got on the on the call with you, and. And then after this, I'm going to finish work and I'm going to, you know, go look at an apartment. And like, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm, so it just sounds like a typical day for like someone in their yeah. 20s or 30s. Like it's really just getting shit done, but also yeah. engaging with your community. And are you having pain today? Like how are you managing all that in between? I'm actually, no, I'm good. I, right now I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. And yeah. it's weird because I, in the crowd, I, we were standing for a long time. And when I'm standing still, 
I start feeling the pain more. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also a metaphor for kind of like my life, which is yeah. why I like to occupy myself and I like to keep myself busy. People say I'm a busybody. <laughs> and some people, for some people, it bothers them. They wish that I would just stay put. But I'm like, if I am not constantly moving or trying to be productive or doing something that produces some result, then I will be thinking about how much pain I'm in. And yeah. it makes me feel like I'm suffering and agonizing life. And I, so I've realized kind of the trick to dealing with that is just constantly keeping myself busy and not just busy, like busy work, but actually being productive. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting just hearing your mindset and like talking about mindset. I'm wondering if you've noticed or if you feel that mindset is playing a role in your continued health, that like you're in that 40% survival right now because you've been in such a good place mentally and that has actually made your body function better. Yeah, definitely. When people say mind over matter and they say all of these, you know, things that we see on signs, they actually, it's true. I mean, I, we can take, we can take my life as a testament to those scenes because it is true. And I, Mm. I'm very natural kind of pessimist or not pessimistic but I'm a realist I'm not one of those people who's like super um, naturally optimistic I'm always questioning things I'm you know I'm a a critical thinker that's how I'll put that and that doesn't have to be a negative thing (laughs) right right I'm just always asking the why for everything and I'm always I don't just accept things as they're handed to me or, or delivered to me and for that reason I still can attest to the fact that I do think that a lot of this has to do with my my mindset. I in my life in in my mind I'm so alive and I'm so filled with life that I do think that it kind of naturally kind of expresses itself through my actions and even if I'm in pain like I said I could be in excruciating pain and I still am able to handle things graciously or gracefully mm-hmm. in a way where people around me wouldn't even notice because I'm just so full of life and it just kind of is this light that emits itself and I don't you know I was gonna say I don't I feel like I don't have to do a lot of work for it but that's actually a lot I, I do a lot of work for it yeah I think I I put in so much so many years worth of that self-work that now it happens more naturally where I don't have to try as hard. Mm. But I am super intentional about the food I eat, the people that I'm around, the environments I'm in. I try to, like I said, set really hard boundaries for myself. Uh, I don't try to, I do. And if mm. I something doesn't make me feel comfortable, I will walk away, I will leave. And I don't always feel the need to explain myself you know, for, for better or for worse. So yeah, I, I feel, uh, yeah, it's definitely a mental thing more than ever. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess saying like mind over matter, of course, that's like a platitude and it oversimplifies the actual state of being that you're in, but, um, yeah. that there is a very important mental component yeah. to your healing or to your well being on yeah. a, on a daily basis is, is really the point there. And um, This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. 
I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to an invisible pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code invisible at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. With that in mind, and despite the fact that like your friends and family know that you have this illness, have you been confronted or forced to justify your illness to other people in situations where like maybe you've been having pain or you've had to set a boundary that someone wasn't cool with? You know, have you been found yourself in situations where you've had to be like, you can't see it, but I'm going to tell you there is something else going on. Absolutely. I, I've had to, yeah, I've, I've had to do that more than, more than what I would have liked. And then there's been, there's, I've had times where I have just opted out of explaining and then that person never heard from me again, because Mm. I do think that some people, you know, you, they have, I have to meet them where they're at. And sometimes that means that they're, if they're not in a, a place to receive information or to become enlightened, sometimes it might be, it might not be worth my overexertion of my energy or effort to try to enlighten them or educate them on something. Mm. So maybe they can catch me in a few years when they've reached that point in their journey, their self journey. But a lot of times what I've realized is that it's not my job to go out and inform everyone. I, you know, if they're in a place that I can meet them at that feels comfortable to me, then I'll go ahead and take that extra step in explaining something. Mm. But some people are, I don't want to put layers or or levels on it, but just to simplify this, like some people can be at a level two of self-work and I'm at a, maybe a level eight. I'm not, to me, that won't be worth it. The return won't be as great. I'm going to put out more than I might receive Mm. in that situation. And so I've realized some battles are not worth me fighting and I have to just gracefully walk away. Mm. Uh, But if they're at a five and they're super eager to understand, but they're just really misinformed, then I might, you know, take a few steps down uh, and be more patient with them and be more willing to explain. Which is also, that's hugely graceful. I mean, when we think about, we're talking about someone who's got limited time, you know, in this life and like, you know, that you're going to take the time out to explain it to someone. Now you can just refer them to this episode of the pod and you don't have to explain yeah. it to them. <laughs> yeah, this is like super, I love this. This is actually like really good. Yeah, that's great. So um, we know that you're doing some public speaking stuff and you're obviously engaged with a number of patient advocacy groups. Can you tell us a bit about your advocacy work, especially in the chronic illness space? Yeah, I've been doing, I've been public speaking or speaking publicly since around 2015. And I actually, I'm, so I was a beauty editor for many years. Mm. Um, and so I naturally started out speaking about beauty and wellness. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the conversations and the panels I was on focused on external beauty and external wellness, like just skincare fads and 
all of those things, like a lot of consumer-based things that didn't really resonate with my personal health journey. And so uh, I don't remember exactly like how it started or where it started, but I wanted to speak more about what was serving my community. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to serve my my Spoonie community mm-hmm. because I felt like the beauty and the wellness industry like they're booming, they're great. They don't need little of me. Like my Spoonie community needs me, and people who are you know chronic illness warriors and who are fighting this battle every day they need they need to be affirmed. They need to you know continue hearing stories about people like them. And so that's when I really started diving kind of deeper into that space. Um, and it just, as I opened, you know, opened my mouth and started talking more about my health journey, that's when I felt less alone mm-hmm. because th- this is the one thing that separates me so hard from the average person. I mean, nowadays, a lot of people have natural hair and afros, or there's a lot of other causes that, um, and, and lifestyles that are out and open that I can relate to and that that's great but I do and that are all parts of your identity as your exactly you know there's so many layers to who I am um but at the same time I it's so rare for me to come across someone who has an autoimmune disease and or who's open about it and um I think you know we're not as rare as we think we are but I think a lot of people just don't speak about it yep and I want I, I want to continue hearing those stories as well so in order to do that, I just have, I feel like I need to just like lead by example and just keep blabbing my mouth about what's (laughs) going on so that someone can write me and email me and say, Hey, that, you know, I'm, I've gone through a similar experience. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of that advocacy work and your experience in the medical system, Mm -hmm. um, you're obviously very well versed when it comes to being in the doctor's office. Um, in what way are you finding that our health system is working mm-hmm. and um, in what ways do you think it falls short or, or requires improvement? I know this is a very big question, but I mean, you can really just think about it in terms of your own experience, especially. Yeah. Um, there's so much that needs improvement. Mm. I think that my biggest challenge as a content creator or as someone who I freelance and so I'm very, I'm project focused or project based. That's a lot of my work comes in just sporadic projects that I'm given, which is great um, because I have a lot of freedom in my schedule and my creativity. At the same time, it's that this type of model of job doesn't provide me with consistent healthcare Mm. and especially in the U S. And so I would like healthcare for everyone. I, and I feel like just generally, generally speaking, you know, artists and creatives, we, we're not taken as seriously in the healthcare space because, or else we would have easier access to these, to basic healthcare needs that we have, let alone someone who has a chronic or rare disease or an illness uh, that can, that affects, you know, their livelihood. And so I just wish that we were taken more seriously uh, and employers as well as doctors. It sounds like. exactly, Yeah. Mm. So how do you think that we could create that improvement in the medical industry? 
or in our work environments? Is there, are there inroads, do you think, and, and ways that we can really go about that, creating healthcare for all? Is it about electing the right people? Um, that's a good question. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I wish I had the answer to that. I think, yeah, we just need, as far as decision makers in the office go, we just need more compassionate people. Yeah. I think that, you know, we have people who are sensitive to certain issues, but no, I'm, I'm still not impressed when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. Reform. I'm just not impressed with what I'm he- hearing, what I see, because I'm affected and impacted directly and I haven't felt those things mm. directly. So I'm, you know, I know that I pay an arm and a leg for my treatment and the treatment keeps me alive. So there's no other way around it. I have to pay thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars for medications mm. and I have to. And if I don't, if I'm not responsible about getting those things and paying for them, then guess what? There's no more debris on this earth. And so that's, and then I'm not, you know, and then I die and like, that's really just what it ha- what happens. And so mm. I, I do think sometimes it feels like having a chronic illness is a punishment because of that, because I, I'm also this person who I am, who wants to create, I know who I am and what I contribute to the world. And it's not working for someone else's you know, nine to five company. That's not me. That has not been me. Thankfully, I've been making a way, you know, for years where I've been, I'm privileged to say that, but at the same time, it's a struggle. And people don't understand that behind the scenes struggle of me having to like scrounge up money to go pay for an appointment or to go pay for a refill, you know? It's a lot. And it's interesting too, because you live in New York and it's like, Mm -hmm. obviously you've got access to some of the best doctors at the hospitals in New York, but by the same token, it's also one of the most expensive places in in the country to live. (laughs) So it's like, you're sort of like taking the good with the bad. And I mean, I know it. I think so many of people tuning in today, we've been there, that, that feeling Mm -hmm. that like you're living paycheck to paycheck and like Mm -hmm. you make your money and then it goes into your rent and your healthcare (laughs) and that's sort of, and then it makes it harder to like eat well or to travel and and see the people you want to see. But you know, I guess that's why credit cards were invented. (laughs) I haven't, I actually, I'm thinking of getting my first credit card because I've never gotten a credit card. Oh, that's impressive. You've made it this long without a credit. I am so impressed. (laughs) I'm actually, you're so much more fiscally responsible than I am hearing that. (laughs) Honestly, I'm, I I need to do it though. I really do. I, I've been thinking about that so much this year because I'm just like, oh man, having like physical money or cash on me all the time. Yeah. It's limiting. So, and it can be exhausting work too. And it's like, then that takes a toll physically and sort of this vicious cycle, isn't it? Absolutely. So, um, can you also talk to us about the role that, cause you, you talk about this a lot on your, your social media channel as well. You know, can you talk to us about the role that both that identity for you be that, um, gender identity, um, race identity, all of these parts that are make you who you are have played in your health journeys? Like, have you experienced prejudice in the healthcare system as a woman of color, um, but particularly as a woman of color with invisible disabilities? What's it been like for you? Absolutely. Um, Even as a woman of color who is queer and brought my partner uh, to, you know, doctor's visits before and gotten a weird vibe from the doctors once they saw that 
this is my partner who happens to be a woman. And that was, you know, so there's just so many different layers to that whole struggle of just being taken seriously. And then seeing, you know, sometimes going to the ER, but having makeup on, not, you know. Oh, I know. I know what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, because you look fine and you're like, no, 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 let's take the makeup off so you can really see. Exactly. And, you know, so, yeah, it's just, and I've, I've had doctors in the emergency room one time. I lived in DC and I remember this man, doctor who came in and I was like, I was like, like keeling over. I had a a ruptured cyst. And then on top of that, I had a kidney stone. I was just in a really bad shape. Yeah. But he came and he held my hand and like kind of caressed it. And he looked at me like deep in my eyes, even though I don't, I was probably looking so like not good, but Mm -hmm. he, I remember it it felt like he was hitting on me and it was so weird. And he caressed my hand and he was like, we're going to get you taken care of. And it was this weird, like, I felt like I was on a date at a bar or something. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm And involuntarily as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, like, I'm not into you, buddy. I just want to feel okay. (laughs) That's weird. Well, because you do hear these stories about certain doctors that have been going down recently who like, you know, have taken advantage of patients when they've been on anesthesia or, you know, when they've not been well. And it's just, Mm -hmm. there are people who predate you know, who are predators, who go after patients when they're vulnerable. So sick. Yeah. Oh, it's so creepy. Ugh. I've, had a, I've also had a doctor who was checking my, a male doctor who was checking my, um, my heartbeat and he had a stethoscope and uh, my hospital gown, I guess I, maybe I had it on backwards. And mm-hmm. so there's usually a flap in the open in the front. Um, and he just ripped it. He ripped it very violently and stuck the stethoscope under my breast. And the way he ripped it felt like it was, it felt very sexual, but it just felt really gross in my mind. Like it, it just felt really bad. And yeah. I've even had, um, I've had someone I don't, I, I don't know what the type of doctor is where, but they had, he had to put his finger in my butt, uh, mm-hmm. to check my stool or something. And he, like a gastroenterologist uh, or something. Yes. Yes. And he shoved it. And I remember I cried. I literally, oh my, my gosh, mom, I was maybe like 21, but I, I cried afterwards and I, you know, it wasn't until years later I think especially during the Me Too movement and all that, when I started realizing, wow, that wasn't okay. Mm. Even though my mom was in the room. She was looking at me. She thought my tears were just a result of, like, physical pain. But I actually, like, sat and cried for a long time after he left the room. And I was, at the time, I couldn't figure out why, mm. why that bothered me so much. You know, he didn't he just came and just did this thing real quick. And it's almost like he was exerting some kind of like a power power. Yeah. It was like some kind, there was some kind of weird power dynamic that mm-hmm. he got out of that. I never saw that doctor again, but I just remember that it, it just felt really bad and sick. It yeah. felt so gross. I felt so gross afterwards. I it's felt- interesting. Yeah. Cause it, it's interesting that you say, cause it's this whole me too movement, which has been so I mean, it's awful that it's had to happen, but it's also so Mm -hmm. empowering for so many of us that like, we weren't raised 
to disagree with doctors, were we? Like we were raised to be like, that makes me uncomfortable. Um, And then to suddenly be like, oh, I can actually say no to things or I can say like that hurts or I'm uncomfortable with this. I mean, it's different from the situation when you were in the hospital in DC and you were sort of like out of it a little, it sounds like, but you know, it's, it's very, it's, it's interesting this time we're in right now, the, the sea change that's happening and, and how that may affect the state of healthcare and how women in particular are cared for from this point onward. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I'm so sorry you've had to go through Like those are just awful experiences. Like there's so many, we all have stories to tell. And like, like I said, I, none of this for me is about me. It's all about like, I only share these stories because I just want to encourage people to know that it's normal, that they're not alone and survivors and women and people who have gone through similar experiences. I just want everyone to know, like, look, we're all here. I see you. I hear you. I have a weird story that can match yours, but it's not even about matching your story. It's just, I'm telling my story to let you know that you can feel comfortable telling yours. Mm, That's a really beautiful perspective. Have you like, in terms of like the mindset, like, have you done all of that work yourself? Has that all been self-motivated or have you like gone to a therapist or done spiritual work? Like, has there been a combination of therapies that you've used to get yourself in the right headspace? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, the self-work is, yeah, it stems from therapy that I've, I, I was in therapy on and off, um, since I was maybe in fifth grade. Hmm. My parents were really, they, they definitely affirmed my unique identity from a young age. And, um, you know, I've always been like kind of this disturbed artist type where I'm just, (laughs) and so I've just, I've naturally been more depressed throughout my life. Like my first really big bout of depression was when I was 13. Hmm. And I, ever since then, I've, you know, they kind of, they, they always have asked me for permission, like if, which I love, they always gave me the freedom of choice. So whether or not I wanted to go and if I wanted help, if I was open to receiving help and I, so I've, I do feel very lucky in that way where I, you know, I realized not a lot of people had that experience, um, but they gave my sister and I a lot of freedom mm-hmm. in Sometimes even when I was younger, I used to get, I would be sad about that. Or as I was older too, I, I was always wondering why they didn't, they didn't, in my mind, they weren't holding me accountable for things. They weren't forcing me to go get involved in sports or things, but I realized they just saw who I was and they trusted that I knew enough about myself to make my own decisions. And so therapy was one of them. And I started going to a school counselor when I was in fifth grade and then I stopped for a bit and then I started going to um, therapy again when I was, I think, 15 or 16. Mm. And so, um, and I also started meditating when I, on my own when I was 12. Wow. I, I, that's when I got into Inya and like Celtic music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, was, I like got candles. I don't even know how I learned about this. I don't mm. know if I saw something on TV or what. Because no one in my family was doing this, but I became very like ritualistic around coming home from school, turning off my lights, playing on my candles, playing on my my Enya, and I would just lay flat 
And I would start from my toes, work up to my head, and lay, uh, name off in my mind everything I was thankful for on my body. And wow, saying that in sixth grade, I don't know. It's so weird. You've had, but, you've been like touched by an angel somehow. It's yeah. like <laughs> no one was doing that around me. So I have, I, I lived a pre- in a pretty rough like environment, and like I had a really crazy upbringing. So I don't. I don't know how I even learned that or what made me curious about. But it was your reaction to the environment. Yeah. And that, and that the fact that it was your reaction to the environment is very telling as well. Like you were already built to survive, weren't you? Mm, Yeah. You really set yourself up for success. It's really interesting. Um, So I'm sort of coming to the end of the interview and I like to wrap things up with a couple of top three lists. Okay. And the first one was, I was wondering what your top three tips would be for someone who has chronic illness or suspects they might be entering this world and joining the Spoonie Club. Mm -hmm. Um, What would your best advice be for for people in this position? Top three. Top three pieces of advice? Yeah. Um, First one is don't be afraid to talk or to speak Mm -hmm. up. You know, so what what comes with that is like we have to be unapologetic about if we're gonna make people uncomfortable. Like it's it's about you. It's about affirming out loud how you feel, and you have to let go of any like perceptions you think that other people are gonna have because there's gonna be all kinds of things that people from the outside are not gonna understand. They're gonna offend you. They're gonna downplay you. Your symptoms all of that, but be prepared for all of that, but still speak up. Don't, don't let that stop you. Cause you're going to, the more you speak, the more, the louder you get in your speaking, the more confident you become in speaking, the more people are going to listen to you and they'll believe you eventually. Yeah. So use your voice. Yeah. Yeah. Use your voice. And I honestly, I feel like that was one, two, and three, but that (laughs) kind of was, I feel like this whole, this whole interview has been so peppered with such wonderful advice too. Like everyone's going to be like, okay, mindfulness, meditation, therapy, (laughs) changing my mindset, you know, like all of this. It's just, it's incredible. You're such an incredible person. I mean, thank you. yeah. And I, I I know people are going to be so inspired by this, but yeah. But if there's more you want to add to the, the pieces of it. No, I think it it all starts there. Definitely. Yeah. Just speak up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. And I I think that's not just, just, you know, it's not just people in the Spoonie community who can take that advice, right? Like there's, that's a, that has wider implications, that kind of advice. And it's really, really important. Um, what about, so obviously you were talking about earlier how you're very mindful about what you put in and on your body, your relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any treatment or lifestyle changes that you cheat on or maybe you have guilty pleasures, secret indulgence, like top three things that give you joy that you're not willing to compromise on. Even if it's like a comfort activity, if you're having a flare up with your pain or something. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely sweets. I am (laughs) all about sugar. I've been eating like two donuts. That's so bad. (laughs) I love donuts. They're my favorite. (laughs) Yesterday I had, in the morning I had this really great donut that I took a picture of because it was so pretty. (laughs) I had another really great donut at night and I was like, wow, I've had two huge donuts today. But 
and it's I stress eat, but I stress eat with with sweets and with sugar. And I'm not, I'm not proud of, you know, I'm not proud of it. But life's That's short. <laughs> yeah, it's like I have to, I do have to treat myself. Mm-hmm. And then another thing would be coffee. I'm a big coffee addict. I, you and, and I are going for coffee and donuts when I'm in New York. Are, yes. <laughs> I already have like a couple of places that, you know. <laughs> Let's go on a coffee and donut hop. We'll yeah. just make an <laughs> afternoon of it. <laughs> yes. I am definitely, I'm all about the, like I have, like my oat mocha is, mm. I love oat milk because I don't drink uh, whole milk, but yeah. I, and it's the closest thing to tasting like whole milk. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's like something I have every morning and you know, it's, it's also has a lot of calories and all that good stuff, but I don't drink or smoke. I've gotten rid of those vices, mm-hmm. um, a long time, you know, years ago. So I'm, that's why I make up for it with the donuts. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so donuts and coffee is, and yeah. well, your mocha with the oat milk, is there anything else? No, that's honestly, that's it. And mm. sometimes the donut is a cupcake or so really <laughs> I get switched all of those out, but it's really those two things. Those, yeah. Yeah. Those are my really bad habits. I really feel you on that. Do you have anything else that you want to share with our listeners? And of course, please share where they can find you and your work. We, I feel like we all keep up with each other because we all have to stick together, you know, as, as advocates, we're not just survivors, but We've done something really special with our survival and, um, and we just, I'm really just proud and excited to be a part of this club because it, it just gives me hope, you know, people like you, um, just like you give me so much hope to be. It's a very loving club, isn't it? Like we really do. We're quite inclusive, I would Mm -hmm. say as a club. And like, you know, I've had people on who've said like, there are certain cliques in, in the different factions of the chronic illness community. And I think that certainly exists, but I think for the most part, this is one of the more accepting communities because it's really like, you have to take people at at face value, who they tell you they are is who they are. And so there's a lot more just natural open acceptance in that way. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So many different walks of life, but we all have this really rare and special thing in common. And that, that trumps every other thing that we don't have in common. So. Yeah. And it really does make you instantly connect with someone on a much deeper level, which is part yeah. and parcel why this podcast exists, you know, because these conversations are always like, they're so much deeper than yeah. you would expect just meeting someone for the first time to be. And it's because yeah. there's that shared common ground. And it's so hard to explain it. Like, what, yeah. yeah, I feel exactly what you're saying to my core, but mm-hmm. I would never be, and I can say that out loud, but someone who doesn't understand just wouldn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's fine because they're not in the club. <laughs> right. And it's fine. And there's, but there's still so much to learn, I think, too, as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as someone on the outsider, it's, there's a lot of beauty in all of this. So. Yeah. yeah uh, oh, and the, the last thing I guess is that, yeah, everyone can follow me or find me. Just everything is my name. So yep. Twitter, Instagram, uh, even YouTube, I have stuff on there. I'm a writer. I was an editor for many years. So I have a lot of written content um, and blog posts and things like that. So even if you just Google my name, guarantee like you'll find some kind of source of hope for some kind of, for some topic that you're dealing with when it comes to mental health or uh, relationships or city living or 
creative entrepreneurship, anything. My name is Devry, D-E-V-R-I, and the last name's Velasquez. Just type in a V and it will pop up. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to link to a lot of this stuff on the, the website page too, so that yeah. people will be able to just click through in both the transcript and in the little intro in before your episode. Um, well, Devry, this has just been such a privilege to chat with you today and to get to know you and to welcome you to the uninvisible part of the Spoonie Club. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I really look forward to keeping tabs on the rest of your health journey. And, yeah. um, you know, please keep us posted on all of the work that you're doing. And uh, we'll continue to share it with all of our followers. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.